Uh, hi, I'm Randy Peterson, and uh, they do let me preach every so often, and uh, I'm actually a writer too, so Jim, I totally resonate with what you're saying, and I'm very impressed there, that, the, that regular um, inspiration to, to, to write that many stories. I, I, am, uh, I am dazzled by that, and uh, so thank you for sharing that, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm already, I'm, um, that's a tough act to follow <laughs> here. Uh, last night was was really great. I, I all day I was at a meeting and uh, just talking with people about intense subjects, and just went home and wanted to to chill out and just sit on the couch and watch TV, kind of recline on the couch and watch TV. And I I saw I saw a beautiful thing. Um, actually, I saw. The, the Flyers playing a hockey game in the rain, uh, which was cool, but that wasn't the beautiful thing. The beautiful thing was uh, baseball. Uh, they were showing a replay of a spring training game that the Phillies had played earlier in the day, and uh, uh, I already knew they lost because I had heard that, uh, but I still just love watching it. There's something about baseball. I am a huge baseball fan, and, and there is, is a beauty to the game, the way it's constructed, the way the way it's played, uh, the, the grassy field, and um, uh, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, baseball, how many baseball fans here? Yeah, there, yeah, there are a few. Here. Good. Baseball is, is such a, uh, it, it has such a great tradition to it, a century and a half of people learning how to play this game and, and traditions within the game and ways that it has always been played. But there's very interesting stuff is happening in just the last couple of years where certain managers are saying, well, what if we did it this way? And they're violating the, the long-held rules of baseball there, that you always bat the pitcher ninth. The pitcher's your worst hitter. You put him at the bottom of the order. Well, some managers say, maybe that doesn't work. And they've, they've worked it out mathematically where you might want a better hitter to bat just before the leadoff hitter every time the lineup turns over. So, so let's try that. And so they've been trying that and testing it out, seeing if that works. Uh, they've been... Um, uh, they've been moving the fielders around. So let's not just put the shortstop there all the time. If the batter usually hits it there, let's put the shortstop over there. And maybe he won't get as many hits. Maybe that'll work. They're trying new ways to do things. The newest thing is there are some teams are starting not with their starting pitchers, but with relief pitchers who will just pitch an inning or two, and then they bring in the starters. So the starters aren't really starters anymore. They're just pitching the bulk of the game in the middle of the game. And for some reason, this is supposed to work out better. They're trying it out, trying new stuff. They're creative in approaching this time-tested game. Now, you're wondering, what does this have to do with church? And um, I don't know. I just like talking about baseball. <laughs> No, I kind of think about, about it, um, I'm, I'm talking about evangelism today. That's the subject that, uh, that we're wrapping up a series on evangelism. And that's kind of what I'm thinking about evangelism, that there are ways that it has been done for a long time, and maybe we should be thinking of new ways to do that. Um, the reason I'm preaching to you today is that I, I missed the planning meeting when they were deciding who was preaching today. So... <laughs> Seriously, this is true. And um, 
So they told me, you're preaching on this day. And uh, if I were there at the meeting, I would have said, no, you don't want me preaching about evangelism because I don't believe in it. And they would have, what? You don't believe in evangelism? This is a core thing in our faith. Everyone believes in evangelism. How can you not believe in evangelism? And I would explain, I don't believe in it the way I was taught it. That I grew up being pressured into sharing my faith with people I didn't know, feeling guilty for not doing that. I was taught a certain way of manipulating people, of forcing my views on people. I alienated half of my classmates because I was trying to be a good Christian and trying to preach to them the gospel of Jesus. And there was something wrong with that. And I knew, even at that age, I knew there was something wrong. I was in a youth group that we, they took a busload of us down to Ocean City one summer afternoon to evangelize the people sunbathing on the beach. People we didn't know that we were supposed to go down and, and start spiritual conversations with these people who wanted nothing to do with that. They were there sunbathing. They were on vacation. And somehow we teenagers were supposed to be telling them the good news of Jesus. I believe in the good news of Jesus, but there was something amiss with that. There was a lack of concern for who those people were. There was a lack of love. So I couldn't do it. I stood on the boardwalk and watched as my friends tried to do that, and I felt terribly guilty. I felt like I was the worst Christian ever because I just could not bring myself to do this thing. Now, many years later, I look back at that, and I think maybe, maybe I was right. Maybe I was on to something. And that's what I want to explore with you today. I had friends back then who went to a conservative Christian college where they were required to, to evangelize two people every week. That, uh, that they had to write up their witnessing reports and hand them in, and if they if they failed to do that enough, they would get reprimanded. They might get expelled if they didn't follow that. They had to share their faith with two people. It was, it was in the city. And uh, so um, I, did, I heard about, there's like a homeless man who hung out on a, on a street corner near uh, one of their dorms. And he got saved like 130 times. Um, <laughs> It was deadline day for those reports, and you know, they're coming, oh, you, you, I'll get you. Yeah, that's not the way it's supposed to work, is it? There's got to be something better, got to be something different. And so, I'm, what I saw in there was a lack of love. And yes, the Bible instructs us to share our faith. We are told to go and make disciples, but we are told, above all things, to love. Love your neighbor as your, yourself. Love God with all of who you are. Let, this will be the way that people know us as Jesus' disciples if we, if we love. So, it is possible to share your faith without love. What I want to find is what if we start with love and then find the way to share our faith from that love? That's what I'm looking for. I, I think of the first chapter of 1 Corinthians uh, 13. 
uh, you may know this chapter, uh, the love chapter, and it gets quoted at weddings a lot. Uh, and I'm reading it from the, new, uh, from the New Living Translation. If I could speak in any language in heaven or on earth, but didn't love others, I would only be making meaningless noise, like a loud gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I knew all the mysteries of the future, and knew everything about everything, but didn't love others, what good would I be? If I had the gift of faith so that I could speak to a mountain and make it move, without love I would be no good to anybody. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't, have love, if I didn't love others, I would be of no value whatsoever. And I suspect that we, in the spirit of this, we might be able to add, if I evangelized thousands of people in stadiums all across the country but did not have love, I would be the, the feedback on, a, on an electric guitar. I would be that annoying beep that my microwave makes. It would be noise without love. So how do we find a way of evangelism that starts and continues with love? I was reminded a couple of weeks ago of the work of, a, uh, of a, an Austrian philosopher named Martin Buber. He wrote a book that was really important uh, in, the, in the mid-20th century uh, called I and Thou. I and Thou. You and me basically. And uh, in it, he said there are two types of relationships that we have in our lives. We have I-it relationships, and we have I-thou relationships. I-it and I-thou. And you can pretty much figure this out. This isn't, this isn't hard to, to imagine what this is. An I-it relationship is where there is an object of your attention. I have a relationship with chocolate. Maybe you do too. Yeah, okay. And so, I love chocolate. Chocolate makes me feel good. Chocolate tastes great. Now, I don't really care what chocolate feels. I don't ask chocolate for advice. I, I don't really care a lot about where it came from or anything. I just, I just use it. It gives me pleasure. I have an I-it relationship with chocolate. I, I hate to say it, but I've had relationships with people that were I-it relationships. I've had dating relationships that were I-it relationships where they, I, it made me feel good to look at them. They were pretty. We went out and had a good time and made me feel good. It's great to be seen with such a pretty person, but Nothing much beyond that. I didn't really treat them as a person. They were an accessory to me. There's some people in your life that, that are it, it's. And this is not always bad. I don't want I, I to turn this in a, I mean, we, we live in a functional society. There are functions that we need to perform for each other. So you go to the Wawa, and there's a clerk at the counter, and it's, an I-it relationship. You don't know anything about them. You really don't care anything about them. You just want your change when you buy your cup of coffee there. The guy who pumps your gas. 
You know, you just want to get a full tank of gas. You need that. He's performing that service, and you just want it to go, go well. I'm not, I, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's not the fullest thing that could happen. And even those relationships might be transformed into something else. Maybe you've had the experience at a restaurant where uh, you have a server who, is, uh, who has a job, and, and you are a customer to that server. They are your server. Their job is to figure out what you want and to bring you that food. And so it's all very functional. It's an I-it relationship. Except maybe sometime in that interaction, the server says something clever. Or, or maybe you notice that the server looks kind of glum. And so you say, how are things going today? And they start telling you about their lives. Or they ask you something, and you start telling them. And so somehow, there's a relationship here that begins. You begin to break out of the I-it and into the I-thou kind of relationship. An I-thou relationship is where the other person is a person, is a full human being with, with feelings, with, with passions, with a history, with, with humanity. There is a commonness that you, that you find with this person. And you can interact person to person, listening and talking and, and sharing together. I-thou relationship. I believe one of the problems with evangelism as I learned it growing up was that we were taught an I-it relationship with the people that we were evangelizing and not daring to enter into an I-thou relationship. We were told to go and evangelize people. Those college students were told to evangelize two people a week. They were numbers. It was a digit. It was a checkoff on a list. It was not a person. And that's the challenge that we have. As people of love, people motivated by the love of God, to engage with people in an I-thou relationship where I care about who you are, and you know God cares about who you are. So let's talk about who you are, and let's see what you want. It's not me manipulating. It's not me turning a conversation so, so we turn, how's the weather today, into, well, God made the rain. You know, it, it, it's not that kind of twisting a normal relationship. It's honoring a human being for who they are and what they care about but it's also tuning in to what they need, seeing them as a whole person, perhaps not assuming that they don't care about spiritual things. So maybe there's a boldness that we bring to it and say, well, you know, I, I go to church, or I was just praying the other day, and here's what I thought, or whatever, that we could share those things about, it, about us because we honor them in their fullness, that they might be interested in things like that. We need to get beyond the manipulation. We need to get beyond the, the mechanism of the evangelism as moving people, whether they want it or not. Hold that thought. Pause there, because the scripture that we are looking at today um, guides us a little bit here, but in a strange way. So, so hold that thought. We're going to go to a story that happens after the crucifixion of Jesus. In fact, after the resurrection of Jesus, where two 
disciples of Jesus are walking home after this horrific weekend where Jesus was crucified. They'd been in Jerusalem apparently in this time, and they may have actually seen the crucifixion. And now they are going home, and their world has fallen apart. And they are walking home. We know one of them was named Cleopas. So he's not one of the 12 disciples, just one of the, the additional people who were following Jesus, who were interested in what Jesus was, was doing. And uh, so Cleopas was one. And, and I've always thought that the other disciple, who's not named, was uh, the wife of Cleopas. So that this was a couple who was going home uh, after their, their time and these terrible events in Jerusalem. And so, just as today, you might strike up a conversation with somebody on a plane with you. In those days, people walked everywhere. And so, you might just be walking with somebody and strike up a conversation with another traveler on the path. And so, they're walking home, and, they, uh, and there's this stranger who starts walking with them. And um, let's, uh, let's take a look at the scripture uh, here, Luke 24. Uh, that same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. Uh, as they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. He's the stranger there. But God kept them from recognizing him. Let's move on. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about the, all the things that have happened there the last few days. What things, Jesus asked. And we're going to pause there in this story. Uh, it's a wonderful story, and, and it strikes, as a, as a dramatist, I, I recognize uh, some elements of uh, Greek and Roman drama in this, where there was always the, the, the person in disguise. And sometimes in comedies, there was always this, you know, talking about someone with the person in disguise right there. We kind of have that here, where Jesus is there, they don't recognize Jesus, and so he, the, they are all sad because Jesus died, and he's not there anymore, except he is there, right there with them. And so it's, it's, this, is, this is comedic in nature. It's a happy ending, even though at the moment it's a very sad thing. Their world has fallen apart. And this stranger asks them, but what's interesting here is that Jesus walks with them, and he talks with them, he asks them questions, and he listens to them. And notice what he doesn't do at, at the start here. He doesn't preach to them. He doesn't say, voila, I am here. I am he is the answer to their problems, but he allows them to share their concerns, their problems. And we know from Jesus, we know from everything else in his ministry that he, he was compassionate. He touched people, not only to get the job done, to, to heal them, but he cared about the people he was encountering. And so in this moment, he honors them in an I-thou kind of way to listen to where their hearts are. And so, actually, we don't have it on the screen, but they go on and, and, uh, and say... Uh, 
what things? The, the things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth. He was a prophet who did wonderful miracles. He was a mighty teacher, highly regarded by both God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders arrested him and handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had thought that he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. But that all happened three days ago. Um, And then they begin to to talk about some of the reports that they'd heard about resurrection, but they weren't weren't sure what to do with that. They seemed like crazy stories that some of the other disciples were saying about resurrection. They didn't know what to believe. So as the story goes on, they, they get to their home and they invite this stranger in to have dinner with them. And then that's when Jesus begins to share with them the truth that he knows. That's when he begins to teach. And he goes through the scriptures and he, he, he brings out the hints in the Old Testament about the resurrection of the Messiah. That God will not let his Holy One see decay, but will, will bring him to life. That the Redeemer will stand once again on the earth. He is sharing with them these promises of new life. And then he breaks the bread. In fact, we have this, the end of this story on the, on the screen. Uh, they sat down to eat. He took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. Suddenly their eyes opened and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. So this raises another problem for us. And, and really, if you share this story with anyone who is not already a believer in Jesus, you may have some difficulty here for a moment because we have Jesus vanishing into thin air in this moment. Um, So here's a little background, and, and go. you may need this, you may not, but um, the, uh, the resurrection body of Jesus, we have various hints of it in the stories in the Gospels, but it was physical, but it was physical in a different way. And we can't quite understand it, and, and so there are theories about it, but whatever. It was physical because we know Thomas touched the nail prints in his hands. We know that Mary was grabbing his feet. We know he ate breakfast with his disciples on the shores of Galilee. He was a physical being, and yet at the same time, this body was a different kind of body because it walked through walls. When the disciples were gathered in a locked room in secret, Jesus showed up among them, and then vanish there. Here again, he's with these people, and then he vanishes. And so we get this sense that there is this new kind of body. In fact, later, the Apostle Paul talks about how all of us as Christians in the resurrection to come, our bodies will be transformed. We will have physical bodies in the new, in the new life, in the new world, in heaven, but, but not in the same physicality that we have now. That that somehow it will be different. And you can go all sci-fi with it and say he's beaming up or beaming down or whatever. I, I don't know. I, I, but, but there's something different about the resurrected body that is, as Paul says, incorruptible. And so 
Jesus in, so the chronology of it is that after the resurrection, there's a 40-day period in which Jesus is making appearances, where Jesus is showing up here and there and having breakfast with his disciples and, and talking to these people and talking with 500 people at a time and, and showing up in very real ways for these 40 days. And then he ascends to heaven. He leaves them. But then a week and a half later, the promise of the Holy Spirit occurs there, that Jesus has promised that he would send his spirit to them to live inside of his disciples. And at the day of Pentecost, there is a magnificent outpouring of the spirit. And so, the spirit of Jesus lives in us. So, let's put all this together. Jesus walks and talks with people who are in great need. He listens to them. He hears what they need. And then, only then, does he share the the answers that he has. The Spirit of Jesus lives in us. He invites us to walk with people who are hurting and struggling. To talk with them, to listen to them, to treat them as human beings and not as things. In an I-thou relationship where we try to understand where they are. And there may be some sharing necessary. We may need to open up the scriptures and say, you know, here's what the Bible says about this. Or we may share from our own life how God has touched us. What we don't do is pounce on people in need. We don't say, oh, look around for people who are hurting and then go at them with the gospel because they're the people who are ready to get saved. That's not what we're doing. We're honoring them and loving them with the love of Jesus because Jesus lives inside of us. I'm not going to get into it this morning, but as I was thinking about I, it, and I, thou, I was thinking so many people have an I, it relationship with God where God's just this big vending machine and you do the right things and expect to get certain blessings. We have an I-thou relationship with God that we want to share with people where God is real, that God has feelings. We care about God. God loves us and we love him. We have a message that's an I-thou message. God loves you as you are and he's ready to work with you and move with you and teach you and love you eternally. We invite people to respond, not in an I-it way, not in a formulaic way where, where you, do, you say these things, you pray this prayer, and instantly you're, you're saved. But we invite people into an openness to God through Jesus where they say, yes, I need what you have. We need to fill out our whole sense of evangelism. Be ready to... to help people in need, be alert to the problems that people are having, and be Jesus to them. Because the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, lives in us. So as we move forward in sharing our story, and sharing the blessings of this church, and sharing our relationship with Jesus Christ, let's treat people as people. People that God loves, people that we love, and not as things. Let's close in prayer. Lord, 
thank you for loving us. And um, thank you for putting up with us when we don't quite get it. Thank you for ministering to us in our times of great need. We ask that your power would flow through us to make us sensitive to the needs of those around us, to know what to say to them. Knowing that the key thing is not the theology we offer, but the love that we show. Tell us what to say and do to help share this wonderful gift with other people. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week.